With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wise men follow him. Today on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Brewer, Bangor, Maine. You're hearing this on April 2nd, Saturday, from 9 to 10. I recorded it April 1st, 2016. And I just realized that 46 years ago today, I arrived in Vietnam. Got off the airplane and stepped into an oven. It was hot. And hotter than anything I'd seen. I'd been in Panama and I'd been a few other places. Santa Domingo and the Dominican Revolution. And it was hot down there a couple of days. But but uh, Vietnam stays hot. Six months when it's hot and dry, and six months when it's hot and wet. And the two monsoons, or if it's a dry monsoon and a wet monsoon. I thought that all monsoons were wet, but not true. Half of the monsoons are dry, just when the prevailing winds change down there near the equator. Got off the plane and uh, went over to the Navy Air Transportation Service that they had to fly... Navy person around in Vietnam to get them from the airport out to where they were going to be stationed. And I was assigned to the Sea Wolves down in the Vietcong Delta. That's where I spent my year. And went over to Air Kofat, which is the name of that unit. They had two old C-47s and one, and one H-46, which is a tandem rotor helicopter, uh, like a Chinook, but about two-thirds the size of a Chinook. We called it the racing hook just to irritate the Army because it was fast. No tail rotor. So all of the all of the power went into the two main rotors and without a, without a lot of power being sucked up by the tail rotor for directional control, it, it was a fast helicopter. Well, all three of their aircraft were down that day. So I didn't get to fly down into the middle of the Mekong Delta. But while I was waiting, a, a kid came by on a, on a little jitney and uh, selling snow cones. So I bought a snow cone, paid for it. The minute I paid for it, the monkey jumped off the roof, grabbed my snow cone, ran up on the roof, and ate, ate my snow cone. 
That was my introduction to Vietnam, and it continued to get stranger and stranger throughout the year. Very different experience that most people will never understand. And uh, we, when we meet each other, we see somebody with a Vietnam hat in Walmart or something. We exchange greetings and say, welcome home. We welcome each other home. I got an invitation by email yesterday, and there's going to be a, a dinner during the Republican convention put on by Anne LePage, Governor LePage's wife. And it's the uh, First Lady's dinner. She's invited two veterans from each county to come, and, and uh, they want to just recognize the veterans. She's been a big veterans advocate, and we're coming up on six years into into his term. So he's uh, well. I'm, I've been invited for Penobscot County anyway. So wife and I are going down and going to have dinner with all these other folks. Be a few stories told, I'm sure. The uh, weather Saturday is. Uh, Chance of rain after 2 p.m., increasing clouds with a high near 49. Light and variable wind becoming south 5 to 8 miles in the evening. Chance of precipitation, 30%. Saturday night, chance of rain showers before 1 a.m. Chance of rain and snow showers from 1 to 3 a.m. And chance of snow showers after 3 a.m. So we got a front coming through. Mostly cloudy, low around 27 Southwest wind around 7 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation, 40% Saturday night. Sunday, chance of snow showers before 7 a.m. Partly sunny, high near 34 on Sunday. Northwest wind, 10 to 17. Chance of precipitation, 30%. And then Sunday night, partly cloudy with a low around 12. Northwest wind, 11 to 17. So it's going to be cold and windy. Monday, mostly sunny with a high near 31. West wind, 7 to 11 miles an hour. Monday night, mostly cloudy, low around 14. Tuesday, mostly sunny, high near 29. Tuesday night, partly cloudy with a low around 13. Wednesday, mostly sunny, high near 36. But Wednesday night, back down to 22. So it's still going to be good for sugaring. You draw on sap, and uh, maple syrup season is extended into April. And it started this year a little early. Around the second week of February, it warmed up. Sap, sap started flowing. So we're going to have almost two months of, of sugaring this year, which is really good. It'll help our economy. Now, the reason I went as far as Wednesday is Got a buyer who bought a, a really nice place up on a ridge looking across at Mount Katahdin. And he's got 156 acres with a nice stream running through it. Now, the land drops between 40 and 60 feet in elevation on the property and a bunch of nice waterfalls. Real nice property. He's rolling in here, moving with, with all of his, all of his uh, personal goods. Rolling in here Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. 
and you just can't ask for anything better than than frozen ground when you've got a heavy heavy equipment rolling in. So we've got the ground is thawed in places at the moment. There is still some frost on the ground in many places. This area that he's his driveway is a quarter mile long and it's shaded. There's only two spots in the driveway that the sun hits, and those are both feed plots for deer. Uh, just really nice property. It's sold. <laughs> so don't be calling about that one. But I, I've been updating him on the weather because he's worried about mud time. He's heard about mud time. He's never experienced mud time. Mud time is a is an event that we just kind of stay in the house, get our fishing equipment ready for the season. Because when the water temperature hits 42, the trout go nuts. And they go on a feeding frenzy. Until then, they kind of just hanging on for dear life because the water's so high in the streams. But when it hits 42, things are settling down, and and uh, it's really good trout fishing for a while. Then in the summertime, you have to find where the cold springs come into the, the other streams. And they'll be hanging around in the cold areas. So, mud time. I had a had some a couple wanted to go out and buy a 50 acre lot, 40, 50 acres. And this is back almost 20 years ago. So I had a 1979 Ford F250 crew cab. I had a the engine went bad in it. Had a 351, so I had an engine come out of a of a Mercury in Holton. It was a 400 cubic inch engine, and I rebuilt the engine and put in a low end high torque cam, uh, Edelbrock dual plane manifold, uh, a Holley 600 four barrel carburetor, and that was a low torque monster. That thing would pull. And it said, don't ever run the engine over 3,200 RPM because of the high lift valves uh, cam in it. And I didn't. I didn't have any need to go over 3,000 RPM. I never did. I don't think I ever got above 2,500 RPM, actually. Boy, that would pull. So I went out, and we looked at the land. The ground was frozen in the morning at I met these people at 8 or 9 o'clock. We went out, looked at the land, hiked it for two hours. Sun, sun warmed up. It got up to about 40 degrees. And uh, coming back out, I was coming out on a road that ran north and south. Now, the roads that run east and west thaw out last, just like the south end of the field thaws out last because it's shaded by the trees. It's, There'll be snow at the south end of the field. They'll be plowing at the north end of the field. And we were coming out, and I broke through the crust. Whoop, dropped right down on the frame. Get out my high lift jack, jacked the truck up, threw a bunch of stones and small logs and stuff under it, and and got in and floored it. Went about three or four hundred yards, came to a nice sunny spot, boom, down through the crust, and I went again. So 
it's a situation just like now. You know, it's warmed up, the roads are starting to thaw out, and then it freezes again. Underneath that, in between the top layer of frozen ground and the bottom layer of frozen ground, there's a layer of mud with the same consistency as wet concrete. It's just nothing. There's no traction. So that's the situation we're going to have in the next next several days. In many areas of Maine, we're going to have a a little a little second freeze and mud time will be extended. Well, I jacked up the truck and uh, put some more detrius from the forest in there and set it back down again. And somebody had left a, a shovel right there beside the road. He'd had the same problem a few days earlier and drove off, forgot his shovel. It was in a good spot because I, <laughs> I used it and I set it right back, leaned it against the tree where I found it. That might be the community shovel. Things like that happen in Maine. So we, uh, I got back in. I said, put your seatbelts on. So, young fellow, about 32, 35 years old, was in the front seat, and his wife was in the back seat. And I had it in four-wheel drive low and dropped it down into drive and went for it. Rocked off of that pile of junk that I pulled under the air and guts forward and and broke it into a cold spot, and it popped right up on top of the of the mud that was frozen. That was just like concrete. We went for another couple of hundred yards and started breaking through again, and I floored it. I had my thumb on the windshield washer, and the washer was going back, and one of the wipers were going back and forth, and the washers were running right just steady on there, just trying to, so I could see out through it. And the truck had a rack on for the, for the canoes, and and they were breaking branches, and we could have got out through. And I knew that if I could make it up on the ledges, right up on top, it was bedrock. Well, I made it up to the ledges, and the woman in the back seat was screaming. And we came to a stop up on the ledges, and I let the wipers catch up, and the mud was sliding off of there like wet concrete right off the hood. And and I turned around, and I said, geez, I'm sorry I scared you, but we, it's the only way to get out of here. So she's scared me. She says, I haven't had so much fun since I was a little girl stationed in Alaska with my father. So they bought the property, and they just knew that, yeah, call ahead before you come up because we do have mud time, and people will roll in there and there was a boat trailer or something headed out to their camp. They just flat can't get there. And it's even worse pulling a boat trailer, those tiny little wheels. So... Tell your relatives if you want to come visiting, call ahead. It's, uh, one of the folks uh, that listens to me lives on a stretch of road that's quite level. <clears throat> and it doesn't drain well. And when the sun hits it, it gets kind of soupy this time of year. His driveway is going to be fine because his driveway is well designed, good proper materials, and and uh, be fine. He can pull out to the mailbox there and get his mail. But heading south on the road where he lives, toward Route 6, is not going to be a good idea. Better to go up north. It's not very far to the pavement. Go out the other way. He'll recognize. He knows knows what I'm talking about. So that's mud time. 
gas is a dollar ninety in Bangor, up six cents from last week. Gas is two twenty in Madawaska, same as last week. Highest price in the state. Highest price is actually two or three rest stops on on the main pike. I don't report them because they're usually they can be uh, twenty five cents a gallon more. If you run low on the pike, they got you. You have no choice. <laughs> and they know it. And the people that, that run the pike normally on a routine basis will fill up before they head down. Right? So you don't have to buy on the pike. So they have to make, they sell less and they have to charge more in order to break even because they've got a big lease. They have to pay the main turnpike authority a rent in order to do business there. Everybody does. Dunkin' Donuts and pizza places and whatever. Diesel is $1.99 in Biddeford, same as last week. And diesel is two forty nine in Augusta. That's fifty cents more a gallon, but that's down thirty cents from last week. Last week diesel was two seventy nine, the highest price. And uh, I don't know if that was some sort of a marketing error or a blunder or how, what happened there, but some people use FIFO, first in, first out. And what they charge for their fuel is is what they would it cost them to put fuel in a tank plus their usual markup. And some people use LIFO, which is last in, first out. So when you filled the tank last week, you you uh, charge, you know, based on the new price. So when fuel prices are rising, they're always based on the rising. But when they go down, they've still got tank fuel in the tank that they paid a higher price for. So retailers who sell commodities charge whatever pleases them, whatever they need to do to make the most money. So when prices are going down, they hang on as long as they can to the higher price until competition forces them to go down. And when it starts to go up, they charge the higher price because they're going to need to sell that fuel. The old econ uh, microeconomics class that you take, econ 102 in college, is... uh, the example is a roll of barbed wire sitting on the top shelf in a hardware store. It's been sitting there for 20 years. And the guy comes in and he wants to buy that roll of barbed wire. Keep his, his neighbor's uh, livestock from coming in and eating the grass on his lawn and messing on his lawn. So he finally gets like, tired of it and he puts up barbed wire. The suburbanite. And the example is now the hardware store owner paid, say, 50 bucks for that roll of barbed wire. Is he going to charge his retail price based on the price he paid for that barbed wire, or is he going to charge it for the price to replace it? Same as the, as the guy with the gas station. He's going to charge the price that it's going to cost him to replace that roll of barbed wire. But he may not buy a replacement because if that's been sitting up on the shelf covered with dust for 20 years, he's probably not going to replace it. 
because he doesn't want to have what they call a carrying cost. It costs money to maintain inventory. So you want to, you want to move products that have a, a short shelf life. In retail, they call it the turn, the turnover. If I buy this product, how long is it going to sit there before I sell it? Well, turnover is not as important as it used to be because the interest rate that you and I, as as regular citizens, receive when we put our money in the bank is like one quarter of 1%. And that's it. So if you put $10,000 in the bank, 1% of that is $100. One-tenth of 1% is ten bucks. So if you put ten thousand dollars in the bank, a year later you will have earned ten bucks in interest. Well that's you know, you're actually going behind when you save money. So now it's in your interest not to put it in the bank. To put it into something you're gonna need long term. Capital goods. A new refrigerator is probably not going to be cheaper in the future. Wash machine, dryer, welder, tractor. You need a new Kubota or John Deere, whatever your preference is, or one of those Mahindras made in India. This would be a good time because the price of these Durable products is probably going to go up due to inflation. Can't there's some things you can't store. You know you can't. Most people don't buy milk, freeze it, and save it for later. And milk is controlled. It's a very very political product. Just like like corn and soybeans. We have government subsidies for all kinds of things in our country, and it it doesn't work. Despite the government's best efforts, it does not work to try to control the price of products, just like the price of labor. They want to raise the price of labor up to $15 an hour. The city of Portland did it, and then they found out that, oh my God, we're going to have to pay our summer employees and and the lifeguards and everything else, we're going to have to pay them $15 an hour. They wanted it to apply to all the private businesses, but they didn't want it to apply to them. Well, the way the law was written, it did apply to them, and they repealed it. (laughs) Well, we don't want to have to pay that. Well, guess what? Nobody in business wants to be told what to pay for a product. It's up. It should be. It should be determined by the supply and demand. Native-born Mainers are leaving Portland in large numbers. Though so this, these are young people. They're, you know, they're 25 to 35 or 40 years old, and they, they want their kids to go to a, a school where they can excel. And there are plenty of schools in Southern Maine where kids can excel. But in Portland, two years ago, 
My date is a little old, but I can see the trend. Portland has 38 different first languages in the school. The law says that Portland has to to hire teachers that speak that language. Those teachers do not have to have a main teaching certificate. They're actually interpreters. So all all of the students coming from Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and Afghanistan, various other places, Somalia, Brunei, there's all kinds of places where these people are coming from in Europe because there are civilized people from Europe, uh, France and Belgium and Sweden uh, coming because most of those people speak some English, but the kids may not. So 38 different languages in Portland. So how much time is is the teacher going to be able to spend with your kid? And they're simply moving out to the suburbs. And Portland wants the government, excuse me, Portland wants to recruit as many students that get free and reduced lunch and various other other federal programs and state programs to replace the students that are leaving to keep their their student numbers up because if the students per teacher drop below 17 the state will give them less money so it's the it's in the in the school district's best interest to keep the the students' numbers up per teacher. Well, teachers don't want to leave; they want to stay there. And the teachers in, down there in Lower Maine make a lot more money than teachers up in Northern Maine. It's a pretty good deal if you can tolerate the working conditions. And young people can do that for a while, and then they leave. Go to a a better school district, better for all everybody, better for the teachers, better for the students. That's a situation that exists in Portland. South Portland doesn't do that. So if they want to stay in the area, they can just go across the bridge to South Portland, but it's a different school district and different philosophy. They are not bending over backwards to recruit uh, immigrants that speak a whole lot of different languages. We've been invited up to Rooster County to put on an apple seed. And we hope to uh, get that established. There's a gentleman that has a farm and he's got a field that's got a good, safe backstop there. And, and all we need is a, is a field or a gravel pit and a porta potty. We'll come with everything else. And it's quite a it's quite a thing. You know, we'll we the apple seed will go, rain or shine. It's uh it's a remarkable program. It exists in all fifty states and we've got one coming up uh the week before April nineteenth in Monmouth, just southwest of Augusta on Route two oh two, right on the main road. You can't miss it. 
Monmouth Fishing Game Club. Plenty of parking. You, uh, you can camp on on the property if you want to. Uh, they actually feed us lunch. So it's a good range. The range is covered. There's a concrete pad with a roof over it. So if it's pouring down rain, you got to go out in the rain to change your targets, but you get back under shelter while you're shooting. One thing I I learned a number of years ago is that you can put uh, Armorall or Rain-X on your rear sight. If you've got a peep sight, the post on the front sight, you can put a drop of Rain-X or a drop of Armorall in that sight with a with a, uh, a Q-tip. <clears throat> a big fat raindrop hits it, it will not blind over that sight. It, it just won't happen. So if you're deer hunting, uh, you can put a dab of armor all on there. And there's not much of a scent on that tiny amount. Same thing with Rain-X. There is an odor, but not much. And that'll keep uh, keep your rear peep sight from blinding over when you when that big buck jumps and goes. So then you won't have to be blowing out blowing out your peep sight to keep the rain out, which is an unnatural sound in the woods. The Republican convention is coming up <clears throat> in three weeks. And uh, it's going to be interesting when you get together with veterans from the other 15 counties and sit down to dinner. It's uh, Everybody has different experiences. The the Republican chairman, the county chair from Aroostook County, was born and raised in Texas. He had a pronounced Texas accent, and he was interested in the Republican Party and willing to work. He was retired military, and the party elected him as party chair for Aroostook County. Party chair from Washington County was a veteran, was a helicopter crewman. And he and I was on the state committee, so the three of us, I'm a veteran, of course, and the, the three of us would meet at Dice Arts down just below Bangor and carpool it down to to Hollowell when the state party headquarters used to be in Hollowell. So we had a monthly meeting. We'd go down there. So I went down to testify uh, in advocate for, I've been an advocate for rural Maine for a long time. I'll go down to the legislature and testify about a bill that they had coming up. I went down to testify against Angus King's compact. County chair from Aroostook came down, and uh, it was a bad thing for loggers, farmers, anybody with land in rural rural Maine. We went down to testify against it, and it was raining, so we parked in the parking garage, ran across the street into the cross building, which is the west big office building down there. Walked down the hall. He says, well, the you know, the place we have to testify is in the next building over. I said, yeah, I know. We'll go through the tunnel. He stopped short. He says, tunnel? What tunnel? I said, this hallway here is a tunnel. It goes down to the other building. He says, I don't do tunnels. Said, what do you mean? I do not do tunnels. I will not go through a tunnel. 
not walking, not in the car, not anything. I don't do tunnels. He had been a Navy corpsman with the Marines up in I Corps in Vietnam. And they get a wounded Marine in a tunnel. And Doc Birdwell was a big guy. He was about 6'4", went about 240 pounds, maybe 250. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. And he got stuck in the tunnel one time underground. And he got out of there and wiggled backwards. But he says, I don't do tunnels. Some people just have a little bit of claustrophobia. Some people get air sick. Some people get seasick. And, you know, people sometimes have a difficulty adapting to the circumstances where they find themselves. Vietnam, I went over there, I probably weighed 175 pounds. When I came back, I weighed 147 pounds. I had lost about 30 pounds. And that was because the water was bad. Finding good water in Vietnam is difficult to do. We drank a lot of soda pop, drank a lot of beer. You know, you got to watch out how much beer you drink. But, but still, you know, if it came out of a bottle or a can, it was safe. And it was the same thing in Afghanistan today or, or Iraq. It, you got these one-liter plastic bottles of water, which we pay a bottling company over there a lot of money because that's what our people drink. They drink the local water in Mexico, in Mexico, for example. They call it Montezuma's Revenge because the natives in Mexico or Vietnam or all over the third world can drink the water. They're used to it. And it doesn't affect them very much. When we take our first drink of water or eat our first, first fresh salad, I was there three weeks, and uh, eating sea rats and eating in the chow hall when I got a chance. But with my job, we didn't get to eat in the chow hall too often. We grabbed food wherever we could find it. And I, in my pocket, my pencil pocket on my left sleeve of my flight suit, I had a ballpoint pen, I had a grease pencil, and I had a spoon. Not a plastic spoon that comes in the sea rats. I had a, a metal spoon. He goes, "Where you got that for?" I might get a chance to eat. <laughs> so, after three weeks of eating sea rats and eating in the chow hall, I decided to eat in the local economy. And and uh, I got very ill. <laughs> I mean, I really got sick first time, and I got used to it, and then I didn't get sick, except that uh, I had a hard time retaining water, and uh, most people, everybody over there had diarrhea. It's uh, not that pleasant to talk about, but we had breakfast three hours ago, so uh, just everybody had diarrhea. And the Vietnamese go out over the river and squat down on a plank sticking out there and do what they need to do, come back in. No toilet paper. And it's just like, to use an expression, 
uh, regarding a goose, you know. Goes through a goose. Well, that's that's what everybody did over there. Vietnamese, Americans, everybody. And I came home, and my wife came running and says, you okay? I said, yep. She says, well, are you sick? Oh, so I've had this for eight months. <laughs> More than that. We went to Hawaii, and the boys came over. We have, My two sons were ages two and four. And wife came over with the two boys on R&R. And the way things were going, you know, like, it could be the last time they got to see Dad, and the last time Dad got to see the two boys. Just the way it was. And uh, so we went to Hawaii for six days, and uh, they went home, and I went back to Vietnam. Got home afterwards. I hadn't lost that much weight at that point, but I lost, continued to lose. And then I was up in Cambodia and, and uh, off and on. No better. Same thing up there. Great big pagodas and stuff up there. It's a, it's a much more highly developed society up in Cambodia, away from the river, than they did in the Mekong Delta. The Mekong Delta is dead flat, except for three mountains called the Three Sisters. But the country is a little more rolling up in Cambodia, well-drained, and you could build bigger buildings, and they had some great big pagodas and statues and all kinds of stuff up there. I uh, went up there one time to pick up some seals. I don't think I've told this story on the air before. But we flew up. I had a hot rod Huey. had the smallest Huey airframe with the biggest Huey engine. It was called an HH1K. It's a K-model Huey. Most people have never heard of a K-model Huey. Uh, they were designed for the use in the mountains of Montana. So if they had an airplane go down up there, they could go out there with this 300-foot-long hoist and pick the people up off the ground from a place where a helicopter could not land. So we found out about this HH-1K, and we went to the Defense Department. Our commanding officer actually went to Washington, D.C., to the Defense Department said, we need these helicopters. So they shipped four of them to us in Vietnam. The commanding officer came back and said, hey, look what I got coming. When the first one was delivered, I went up to Saigon and picked it up. And it was indeed a hot rod Huey. It had a 300-foot hoist. You could hover over. In, in that hot weather, you could hover up there 300 feet off the ground and lower a jungle penetrator hoist down through the trees to pick seals up. And you could pick seals up two at a time. And they always had a lot of gear with them. I mean, they're big guys, rugged guys with lots of gear. So two seals with all their gear, could weigh five or 600 pounds. You could pick five or 600 pounds up on this hoist and yank them up through the branches. They love that. Just go slamming up through the branches and, uh, and <laughs> it'd be branches and bushes and leaves falling off them when they get in the helicopter. But they, uh, when the hoist got up within 40 feet of the helicopter, the hoist slowed down because that hoist was going so fast that they'd go right on by the helicopter up into the rotor system. Don't want that. It's not a good thing for anybody involved. 
So the hoist would slow down. We'd bring him up to the door, swing him in, drop him off, and run the jungle penetrator hoist back down again. This is never a, a comfortable thing for the pilot and the crew. Because there you are, hovering at treetop level, lowering the hoist down through there. Talk about a target. I mean, you got this noisy beast up there, this Huey helicopter up in the trees, hovering. So the enemy will come running from all over and try to shoot you down. It was just not good. Picked up my five SEALs in Cambodia, way up in Cambodia. It took me a while to find them. We didn't have GPSs back then. They had no radio direction finding equipment that they could transmit from there seals on the ground so and they were out doing what seals do which is thoroughly irritating the, the enemy so we uh picked them up anyway got all five seals up in the helicopter this is at night so i called they had a air force transport type plane orbiting over the mekong delta called paddy control I call Patty Control. This is Sea Lord One Two Three. The uh, this was not a gunship, so the gunships were called Sea Wolves, but the the other ones were called Sea Lords. Admiral Zumwalt invented that name. Sea Lords stood for Sea, Ocean, Land, River Delta. So we, I told to call Patty Control, and I said I have my package, which means I got all my seals on in the helicopter. Well, I cannot make it back across the fence into South Vietnam. So I'm going to go to Neek Long, which is a ferry landing on the Mekong River. And I knew they had diesel there. But it wasn't a very, very, very good place to be. But the only source of diesel I knew up there, so I was going to go over there and barter for the diesel. Well, Patty Control called back and said, no, 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 don't go, don't go over there fly 25 clicks northwest. Well, that's away from the border. I said, uh, that's the wrong direction, guys. No, no, you fly up there, and there's an airstrip there. No airstrip on my map. So anyway, they said, fly 25 clicks northwest and land at the south end of the airstrip. Do not go to the north end of the airstrip. I said, well, all right. So co-pilot didn't like that idea, and I didn't like it much myself, so I we flew up there, and there was this pretty good airstrip. It was a, you know, it was a dirt airstrip, but it was, you know, looked in good shape, and the bushes were trimmed on the edges. And I went in there and landed at the south end, and this communist block, one-ton truck came down pulling a trailer. I told my crewman, I said, "You take a sniff of that nozzle. If that's gasoline, we've had it." But it was diesel, and a Huey will run on diesel. So here I've got. Five seals with camouflage faces. They paint their faces with brown and green blotches. And outside the helicopter, there's about 25 mercenaries with AK-47s and the fuel truck driver, who also had an AK-47. So we start dumping the fuel in. My crewman, my crew chief, is putting the fuel into my helicopter, and it's running the course, and the and the gauge starts coming up, and I started laughing. My co-pilot, who was quite uncomfortable with this whole situation, said, what are you laughing at? I said, I hope these guys don't want to get paid. And he started laughing. 
kind of broke the tension. So we filled up and headed back, and the, all these guys went up to the other end of the airport. There were some trucks driving up there. Not an airport, just an airstrip. But there was a twin-engine fixed-wing airplane at the other end that I'd never seen before. Don't know what kind of airplane it was. It certainly wasn't wasn't American airplane. And then I noticed was the headlights were moving around up there. There's two helicopters up there with droopy blades and droopy tails. These were Soviet or Red Chinese helicopters. And uh, I thought, yeah, right. There we go. This is a this is a CIA operation, or it's a drug running operation, one or the other. And because up north they grew a whole lot of opium, so we got fueled up. We took off, headed back down. Told uh, Patty Control, this is Sea Lord One Two Three or whatever the number was, and we are across the fence. And he says, "Okay, Sea Wolf One Two Three, this never happened. This never happened." I says, "Okay, <laughs> I got you." Flew in, and we landed at a place right on the border called called Chow Dock on the Basak River. The Mekong splits into two rivers. And there's the Mekong, and the Basak is the lower river, the one further south. Basak means lower river. So we landed at Chow Dock and shut down. The seals all piled out. And the, uh, we, we were going to get fueled up, but we had to get something to eat. So we shut the helicopter down. The officer in charge came running out, and he starts yelling at me, you're not supposed to shut down in Cambodia. I said, I didn't shut down in Cambodia. Well, he says, now, Huey will not fly for seven hours. So I said, I did not shut down in Cambodia. I said, have you ever flown a K-model, Huey? He says, well, no. I said, well, you go find yourself a pilot's handbook and look at it. I didn't lie to him. Try not to do that with anybody. And what I told him was the truth. I did not shut down in Cambodia. He just could not imagine a Huey being refueled in Cambodia. I didn't tell him what we'd done. I just told him, I says, go find a pilot's handbook. I'm trying to tell the truth here. So we got something to eat. And sitting on a rocket box there at night still. And... SEAL team leader came over and sat down beside me on the rocket box, and he's eating. And he says, you know, he says, other people aren't like us. <laughs> I says, you got that right. You know, a really memorable mission. I flew a lot of missions over there, and that one just kind of stands out clear as a bell. It's just, they didn't find the Americans. There was a prisoner of war camp. It wasn't really a prison war camp, but there was a location where they were holding two Air Force pilots that had ejected. I saw the site where their F where their F four crashed, and uh, on a previous flight up there in the daytime, and uh, the the Americans had been there because there were tracks in the mud with American boots, but they. They weren't out there. They'd been moved. And hope those guys made it. You know, we had a few that did make it. 
And they were probably, wherever they were, they probably heard those Huey helicopter blades and said, here we go, you know. We called on the radios, but they, of course, they didn't have their radios. We would say pop smoke, and that pop smoke, uh, and you have yellow smoke come up through the trees, and then purple smoke, and I says, got your banana smoke? And he says, negative banana smoke, grape smoke, hit that banana smoke. <laughs> yeah, it was a different world. Never been anything like it before or since. Unique experience for the naval aviators and the naval air crewmen that were there. Years afterwards, our crewmen got air crew wings, combat air crew wings, because they were all in combat. And they hadn't been, nobody had gotten any since the Second World War because they did not award combat air crew wings to our Navy uh, crews in Korea because we didn't have any uh, Navy helicopters in Korea that I know of. The Army had had the Bells, and the Army had the H-19s, the Sikorsky troop-carrying helicopter, and they had them as rescue helicopters. But, uh, I don't know of any Navy helicopters that went into Korea. The, our carriers had the HUP, which was a small tandem rotor helicopter as, as a search and rescue helicopter. I don't know if they actually went into Korea. I never heard of any that did. And uh, I'd like to know that. If anybody knows it, they can find me on the Internet, Northern Mainland Man, and you'll find me. Well, I had not ever heard of that, but our crewmen, after, long afterwards, got Navy combat air crew wings, which is a wonderful thing. And our, they have a, a role of honor for Navy air crew in Charleston, South Carolina. There's an aircraft carrier there. They've got a Huey gunship sitting there. It belongs to the Sea Wolves. And they have a memorial down there for for Navy air crewmen who performed above and beyond, which many of our crewmen did. We've got a lot of Sea Wolves on that wall. They got a bunch of them from... Uh, the squadrons that served in Iraq and Afghanistan we had Navy uh, helicopters over there, and they had Navy gunships. And just last week, they decommissioned the last remaining helicopter combat support squadron in the Navy, last one. It's a need that needs to be met. Uh, I flew in Chile. Well, the first time they tried to, Allende tried to take over. I flew in the Dominican Revolution, rescued a bunch of people out of the embassy, and I flew in Vietnam, and I flew in Cambodia. And the Navy looks at aviation differently than the Army does. It's not, it's just different. <clears throat> I understood this when I flew into a place called Makwa, Makwa is right on the Cambodian border, like six miles or ten clicks from the border, just far enough that they're out of artillery range, <clears throat> out of mortar range. It's up in the plain of reeds, and it floods for six months out of the year. 
I flew in there, pouring down rain, and to bring some supplies up to our detachment that was up there because our squadron was broken up into nine different detachments and they were all over the Mekong Delta so they could be close to the action when they were needed. And there's eight or ten Army D and H model troop-carrying helicopters sitting there. And it was during the rainy season and it was the rain was cold enough that when you got wet you were chilly. Because nobody ever wore rain gear, because rain gear just trapped the heat inside. So you just, I never saw anybody wearing rain gear. The women carry umbrellas, and that's it. But I landed there, and I looked over the smoke coming out of the helicopter, which kind of, you know, worried me. <laughs> You're not supposed to see smoke coming out of helicopters. And there's these guys inside a helicopter. We had what they call chicken plates. And a chicken plate was a chest armor. It's heavier than the regular body armor, and it's it's kind of V-shaped. So if you get hit on the chicken plate, it'll ricochet off and hit your co-pilot, or vice versa. <laughs> co-pilot gets hit, it can ricochet off and hit somebody else in the helicopter, but it didn't penetrate into your chest cavity unless you get hit with a 50 cal, which in case you're about had it anyway. So... It would hit the arm, but it wouldn't go into your chest. And it would stop an AK-47 bullet fired point blank, which was what the enemy had, AK-47. So sometimes SKS is for, the, for the, what we call the, the rough pups, the regional forces, popular forces. They were like a, like a third world national guard. And I was looking over there, and they had one of these chicken plates. In fact, several helicopters had these sitting on the deck of the helicopter and they broke up, they, they took wood from rocket boxes and ammunition boxes, which came in wooden boxes and they had a campfire in there in the helicopter cooked, heating up their sea rats because hot sea rats are better eaten than cold sea rats you know cold lima beans just not very appetizing which is why our door gunners use the lima beans to, as a chute to guide their ammunition into their M60 machine guns so I look over there, and I thought, yep, now I understand. Because nowhere would you ever have a Navy crew, helicopter crew, with a wood fire inside the helicopter cooking their food. It just flat would not happen. The Navy has a little more reverence for their aircraft than the Army does. Same helicopter, obeys the same laws of physics every day, but we have a different attitude toward it. We respect the aircraft. The Army looks at a Huey helicopter as a flying deuce and a half. You know, pile a bunch of stuff in there, or pile a bunch of people in there, and go and drop them off, and go back and get more people. And then after they've thoroughly irritated the enemy, you go back in and pick up the wounded and the survivors from a hot LZ and take them home again. And that was the that was Air Mobile, the cavalry, Air Cav. Great guys, great courage. It just uh, these guys were 19 years old flying helicopters. The back page of the Mechanics Illustrated back then 
You open it up and you look and it says, you like to drive fast cars, work on engines? How would you like to have your own helicopter? And people say, all right. You mean I don't have to go to college and get a degree? I can you know, just let me fly a helicopter? Yep. It was true. They can turn out an Army pilot in six months. It takes a year and a half to turn out a naval aviator because you have to learn to fly at night in the rain on instruments. Get where you're going safely. You'll have to land on an aircraft carrier with a tail hook. The first time you do that, you're solo. You have to do it correctly. And then the test is live, die. That's it. You, know, you do it successfully, you take off, you go around, you do it again. Every time you do it, you get better at it. But the first time, you do it solo. Every naval aviator, until recently, had the carrier qualify. Now, as budget cutting due to sequestration, Barack Obama, we don't have to teach all these guys to land on an aircraft carrier. We'll just let them fly multi-engines someplace else, or we'll helicopter pilots, they can land. No need for them to land on an aircraft carrier. They can land on a flat place, you know, even if it isn't an aircraft carrier at night and in the rain, which is true. This is what we did. Most of the Army pilots that went to Vietnam as first tour pilots did not have instrument tickets. They were not qualified to fly under instrument conditions. And there we used to tease them and say, your instrument ticket has got a hole punched in the middle of it. You hold it up, you look at the sky, and if the hole is blue, you can go flying. (laughs) Irritated them. But they were good at what they did, and they had great courage, and I have the greatest respect for aviators of all kinds. A B-52 was bombing Vietnam, and he was going from Guam to Vietnam, 25,000 feet up in the air, and he'd drop his load and go back to Guam. Air-conditioned comfort, go to the, go to the old club. This one pilot said, uh, an Army helicopter pilot was going to go in, and he'd, he bombed some valley up near the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And Army pilot says, uh, let me know when you're done, you know, because it, it shook your whole helicopter. <laughs> Those big bombs were it was quite an event when to get three a flight of three B B fifty twos unload all at once in one one target. Well anyway they they uh he called down this army pilot says, I'm gonna go in and do your BDA and he says, I'm gonna do my own BDA and he flew he dropped down and he flew that B fifty two down the valley, just above treetop level. He flew below the helicopter with a B fifty two. And just just turning down, he had he had maps and he had all kinds of radar, and they flew down that valley and pulled up full power, flew back to Guam, and uh, probably didn't take any fire at all. I don't know, but flew back to Guam and and not this pilot, but somebody that flew back to Guam with a B fifty two. Came in and he lost an engine. B-52s did take hits, and uh, or they simply just failed due to mechanical malfunction. But this B-52 was called the tower. He says, you know, 
called his call sign. He says, coming in with one engine out. Well, with an engine out, there's always a risk of a fire. So they rolled all the crash trucks out there, and they came in and they, you know, made a routine landing. But while he was on making his approach, F-15 pilot called up on the air and says, ah, yes, the dreaded seven-engine approach. Because <laughs> if that guy loses his engine, he punches out. That's it. He's gone. Well, it's coming up on 10 o'clock. have to indulge this old man for reminiscing a little bit. But tell these stories, and people say, yeah, right. I flew Navy helicopters on the west coast of Vietnam in the night and the rain. And the Army pilots will look at you, yeah, right. There's no west coast of Vietnam. Well, yeah, there is. You look down the bottom at the Mekong Delta, and there's a west coast of Vietnam on the Gulf of Thailand, and I have been there. So this has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscious of Maine. Now, you can't tell stories like that if you don't have pictures. I've got pictures. Broadcast in Maine on WXME, 780 AM in Monticello, 1700 AM in Lewiston, 88.1 FM in Westbrook and Orono, 96.5 FM in Ruhr, Bangor, Maine. Be safe. Plan your travels prudently. If you're going to venture out onto the dirt roads in the next couple of three weeks, Bring your jack and your chain and your rope and some shovels and a bow saw so you can cut a few birch trees and you can put it underneath the vehicle and try to go another 50 feet before you get stuck again. Or you can sit home and tie flies and take care of your fishing equipment. Be safe. God bless. Wise men follow him. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.